God, we're going to open your word together now, and so um, we invite you, as we already have, Spirit of God, to be present with us and to open our eyes and ears that we may behold wonderful things from your word today. In the name of Christ, God's people together said, amen. Uh, Amy and I were away last weekend. We have matched with a new birth mom, and so we were uh, visiting that new birth mom. She's pregnant, babies due at the end of June, and so if I take off in June and I'm just not here, that's why. Um, and so we're excited about that, but, but I'll tell you more about that another time. But, but as we were coming home, uh, a friend of ours named Sarah picked us up at the airport. We were in, in Florida visiting this birth mom, and, and uh, we're coming home, and Kaya, who is our two-and-a-half, three-year-old, something like that, However old she is, I don't know. Um, she's funny. So however old that makes you when you're funny. So, so we're, we're driving home, and Kaya um, is, is starting to get really sleepy. And it's like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And for those of you who have children that age or children that have grown up that age, and they're between two and a half and three years old, and they fall asleep at about 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, what does that mean for the rest of your evening? It's going to be a disaster, isn't it? So here's what we do. We give Kaya a phone to play with, and it keeps her awake. And some of you might think, like, that's really bad parenting, and that's fine. You feed your kids organic food, whatever. That's fine. For us, we give her a phone to play with, and we gave her a YouTube, and she was watching Little Mermaid. So she's watching Little Mermaid, and it's part of your world, and she's having a great time. And we start having a conversation in the car, me, Sarah, who picked us up from the airport, and my wife, Amy. And the next thing you know, like five, ten minutes into this conversation, I hear my wife say, and I quote, Kaya, are you watching Family Guy? So just in case you're not aware as to what Family Guy is... It's a very, very inappropriate cartoon for all of you, much less for a two-and-a-half-year-old. But Kaya has clicked through YouTube videos starting at Little Mermaid and is now at Family Guy. So we took the phone away from her and gave her something else. Okay, now listen to me. Don't lie. It's church. Do not lie. Has that not ever happened to you at work? When somebody sent you like a training video or a video, this might be of interest and the next thing you know, you're watching videos of like cats falling off of dryers at you, on YouTube or something. Yes, for some of you are honest, that's happened to you. For the rest of you, you're lying. And, and so this is a little bit what happened to me as I studied the book of John this week. I started in John chapter 3, and I ended up watching Family Guy. No, I didn't. I ended up watching Family Guy. Started in John chapter 3, and what it did was it led me down a little bit of a tangent into a little bit of a rabbit hole. And at the end of that rabbit hole, what I found is Jesus teaching me how to grieve well. So I started in John chapter 3. And, and I just kind of followed the trail of breadcrumbs a little bit. And at the end of that trail of breadcrumbs, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 14, taught me how to grieve well. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to start in John chapter 3. I want to take you down that road with that trail of breadcrumbs. And at the end of it, maybe Jesus will teach you a little bit about grieving as well. Sound good? John chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you don't have your Bibles, the scripture's up here on the screen. You can use the Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can use your phone, your iPad, whatever. Just make sure it's off. You can look on with a neighbor. And this is where we left off last week after Dave did a fantastic job, by the way, on John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Not an easy passage. I love Dave's message. I was, as I was watching it on Tuesday night, I was blowing Dave up on his cell phone. Like, man, this was awesome. Man, this was awesome. Like, you know, I try to change me, and I can't change me. Dave, this is so good. Like, anyway, so Dave's like, I'm trying to sleep, dude. So, so after this, that's the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus that Dave talked about last week. After this, 
Uh, this is verse 22, by the way. Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, that's John the Baptist. That's not our author, John the Apostle. A, this is a different John. John the Baptist was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. Great place to baptize. Look, water, let's baptize. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in, say that word with me, prison. So John is assuming that we, John the Apostle now is assuming that we know that John the Baptist is in prison. Now, we may not know that unless you've read the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You wouldn't know that. And you certainly wouldn't know that because information circulated in first century Palestine because none of you lived in first century Palestine. We live in 21st century Canada. But John's, John's readers did know why John was in prison. They knew his fate. They knew what was going to happen. John the Apostle makes that assumption of them. So the next trail of breadcrumbs here is why was John in prison? How did he end up there? What was his fate? What, what's the next step in the journey for him? Because John chapter 3 here is the last time we'll hear about John the Baptist. Remember how much, how much big deal John the Apostle made about John the Baptist at the beginning? You know, he's opening a door for Jesus. He's clearing the way for Jesus. He's making paths straight for Jesus. And, and he makes a big deal of him. This is the last mention we'll see of him in, in, until John chapter 5. And it's just a really brief comment about John the Baptist. So here's the question, why is John in prison? Well, Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 14. So put your finger right there and go back to your left three books to Matthew's account of the life of Christ, and you're going to be in chapter 14. Matthew is a gospel or a biography of the life of Jesus, just like John's biography of the life of Jesus. And he tells us a little bit more about why John is in prison and what happens there. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to pick it up in verse 3. Matthew writes this, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So Matthew tells us that John the Baptist spoke out against Herod's immorality. Well, what exactly was going on with Herod? Why would John the Baptist say to him, it's not lawful for you to be married to that person? Let me explain what's going on. There was a man named King Herod, or Herod the Great, who was king or tetrarch in Galilee when Jesus was born. He was a real gem of a guy. He had five wives and seven sons, and he's the one that legislated the killing of every male under the age of two when Jesus was born because he was threatened by 12-month-old males, essentially. And he had seven different sons. We're only going to talk about three of them here. You don't need to memorize all this stuff, but this is why John the Baptist is speaking out against immorality. King Herod had three different sons, or seven sons. Three of them were Aristobulus, Philip, and Antipas. Aristobulus got married and had a daughter named Herodias. Now, everything is pretty cool so far, except for the fact that King Herod has five wives. That's a little weird, but it's going to get really icky because Aristobulus has Herodias, his daughter, and she falls in love with Philip, and they get married. Philip is her half-uncle. They have different moms with the same dad. That's icky, is it not? It gets more icky because they have a daughter named Salome. Ew. 
And then when this group of people, this family, takes a little family vacay in Rome, you can actually read about this in ancient history. They take a little family vacay to Rome, and Rome, being a very romantic city, Herodias falls in love with Antipas, and she leaves Philip and marries him. So John the Baptist begins to speak out against this immorality and says, according to Leviticus 18, this is not good. This is not okay. This is against God's law. Not only that, your family tree is supposed to have branches. Like this is icky. This is a weird deal. And so Herod Antipas is not happy about it, and so he puts John the Baptist in jail. He's kind of a chicken. He's kind of a coward because what he really wants to do is kill him, but he doesn't have the guts to do it, so he just puts him in jail. And when he's celebrating his birthday, Matthew chapter 14 tells us, and it's not really his birthday, it's the year, or it's the anniversary of his ascension to the throne. So not like his birthday, like he just turned X number of years, like his anniversary of his ascension to the throne now. His wife slash niece, ooh, thinks it's a good idea to ask her daughter slash grandniece of the to do an erotic dance for him. This is what Matthew chapter 14 tells us. Now, everybody do this with me real quick. And so she does. Salome does an erotic dance for Herod Antipas. And Herod loves it so, so much that he says, look, that was awesome. I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. Very impetuous choice, by the way. And Salome goes to her mom, Herodias, and she says, what do you want? I don't know. Like, I'm a kid. I'm like 13. What do you want? And she goes, you know what I would like? This John the Baptist guy who told me it was immoral for all this stuff to be happening, told me my family tree ought to have branches, and it was against God's law, the one that's in prison, I don't like him. Ask for his head on a platter. So Herod sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Everybody tracking with me down my little uh, rabbit hole here? Follow me how I got to Matthew chapter 14. So let me ask you this. What do we know about John the Baptist so far in our study of John? Well, we know that he's Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Remember, Jesus' mother Mary and John's mother Elizabeth were relatives, and so Jesus and John were cousins. They grew up together. John was a few months older than Jesus. John the Baptist was also Jesus' baptizer, much to Jesus' protest, by, or John's protest, by the way. John said, I don't want to baptize you. I'm too low. Like, I'm not worth this. Like, please. I don't. And Jesus says, look, in order for all righteousness to be fulfilled, you have to baptize me. And so John baptized Jesus. A lot of times nowadays when people get baptized, they ask someone really important to them. They ask a pastor that they have a relationship with or even a friend or relative to baptize them. Same back then. John meant a lot to Jesus. John the Baptist was the closest thing that Jesus had to appear on the planet. Jesus didn't have any peers, nobody that was equal to him. But Jesus himself, now in Matthew chapter 11, would say of John the Baptist, no man has been born of a woman that's greater than John the Baptist. He would have been the closest thing to appear that Jesus had. And he was also, in a lot of ways, Jesus' best man. Like the best man at his 
wedding. In fact, in John chapter 3, verses 25 through 36, which we did not read, and I encourage you to study it on your own because there's a lot in there, John the Baptist begins to refer to himself as kind of the best man at the wedding of Jesus. Now, Jesus wasn't married biologically, but Jesus was the groom that came for his bride, his people, the church, and that's a metaphor that the scripture uses for Jesus' relationship with us. And so John says, I'm like the best man. Like, my joy is complete. I'm here to serve him. I'm excited. Now that the groom is here, I'm like his best man. My brother was my best man, one of my favorite people on the planet, one of my best friends. So let me ask you this. If you had a relative who was the closest thing you had to appear, like a, like, like a, a brother, like someone who sharpened you close to you, the best man at your wedding even, the person that you asked to baptize you. And that individual was beheaded at the hands of a monstrous, tyrannical ruler for speaking out against unrighteousness. How would you feel? Ticked? Probably. Sad? I'd assume so. The very next verse, after John the Baptist's disciples go to Jesus and say, John the Baptist has been beheaded. This is the very next verse. Now watch what Jesus does. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. See, so far in the book of John, we've encountered party Jesus, turning water into wine. We've encountered philosopher Jesus. Dave talked to us about him last week. We've encountered angry Jesus as he scattered the money changers in the temple. And today we encounter grieving Jesus. Jesus is hurting. Jesus, the God-man, the word become flesh, who is able to sympathize with all of our weakness, is grieving the loss the untimely and wicked death, execution of his friend John the Baptist. He has withdrawn to a desolate place by himself to grieve and pray. You know, Jesus grieves pretty often in the scripture. When Jesus overlooked his city, Jerusalem, that had run away from God, he wept, the Bible said. He felt compassion deep within himself and cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. In John chapter 11, Jesus wept before the tomb of his friend Lazarus when he lost his friend Lazarus. Jesus grieved in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus grieves often. In fact, look at these two verses, one from the New Testament and one from the Old that talk about grieving Jesus. Hebrews says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with, say this word with me, loud cries and what? Tears. He's grieving. Uh, Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah writes about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, and this word, familiar with pain. Not just experienced pain, but it was like pain was a friend to Jesus. Oh, pain, I remember you. Hurting, grief. So here's the thing. I am so glad that Jesus grieved. I, I am, and here's why. It's because we all grieve, don't we? Some of us are grieving the loss of a parent or even a spouse in death. 
Some of us grieve the loss of a child in death. Some of us are grieving a miscarriage. Some of us are grieving not being able to get pregnant at all. Some of us, like me and Amy, are grieving a failed adoption. It doesn't matter what the loss is. It could be the loss of a dream. You could grieve that. It could be a, a marriage that dissolved or a relationship that fractured that you no longer have and it, you've lost it and it hurts deeply. It could be a financial loss that you're grieving. And it could be a recent loss or a loss that happened long ago, but you still feel that grief inside your heart. And for those of you in the room who are like, yeah, I don't know that I've experienced, you know, I've, I'm not grieving. Okay, great, you're 11, and you will eventually, okay? But for the rest of us, we know what grief feels like, and I'm so glad that Jesus grieved because what he tells us in his grieving is that it's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve. Some of us have this impression that, you know, we, we have to put on a smiling face and like, I'm a Christian and I go to church and so we put this kind of paper mache mask on that has a big smile on it. We go, yay, I've got the joy of the Lord. It's like, you do, you do. You have the joy of the Lord, which is a deep abiding spiritual happiness that is evident to people around you, but you still grieve. Those two things can happen at the same time and it's okay to grieve. Amy and I spent four days in a hospital room last year with a baby that we thought would be ours. The last minute, the birth mom changed her mind, and I walked out of that hospital room crippled by grief. Literally hit the floor of the hallway in the hospital room because I had to say goodbye to that child, and I grieved. If your pastor grieves, better yet, better yet, better yet, if your Lord grieves, if Jesus grieves, it's okay for you to grieve. Please, please, let Jesus give you a little bit of space and a little bit of margin today to say, okay, it's okay for me to grieve. Jesus did often, so it's okay for me. But here's what I want you to know, because here's what Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 14 in his actions, is that grief can be a stepping stone or a stumbling block. We talked about this with anger. Anger can be a stepping stone that leads you towards the heart of God or a stumbling block that leads you away from the heart of God. The same goes for grief. Grief can be a stepping stone or a stumbling block. And it's fascinating to me because Matthew chapter 14, the entirety of what we just read and what happens subsequent to Jesus finding out about John the Baptist happens within the context of grief. Jesus is grieving through that entire text. In the same way that John has these transitional statements in the book of John, Matthew also has transitional statements. And Matthew does not make a transitional statement until Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. What that means is all of chapter 14 happens while Jesus is grieving. So listen really closely. You heard Jesus walking on the water, going out to the boat and calling Peter, and Peter walked out. Remember that? Happens while Jesus is grieving the loss of John the Baptist. Jesus feeding 5,000 people. It happens while he's grieving the loss of John the Baptist. So in Matthew chapter 14, what's happening is Jesus is saying, one, it's okay to grieve, and two, can I teach you how to grieve well? 
Can I teach you a couple of principles that when you grieve, not if you grieve now, but when you grieve, when you're sad, when you're mourning the loss of whatever that is, here are four principles that you can learn to make grief a stepping stone that drives you into greater dependency on God and not more dependency on self. A grief that drives you into community and into relationship rather than withdrawing and becoming introverted. Grief that drives you to serve and give to others and make a difference in the world rather than grief that, that makes you withdraw from others. Grief that, 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 that is a catalyst for you to rely on the heart of your heavenly father and allow him to love you well rather than separating yourself from him. Jesus teaches us four principles on how to make grief a stepping stone and not a stumbling block. Let's take a look at this first one here. It says, when Jesus heard this, when Jesus heard about John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. What's he doing? He's getting alone, right? He's getting by himself. He's grieving alone. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. So what's happened now is that this crowd has shown up and Jesus was by himself and now he deliberately goes ashore in order to engage with the crowd. We will see this pattern in the life of Jesus through all four gospels, this pattern of retreat and engagement. This pattern of getting alone and being with friends. This pattern of being by himself and being with crowds. Or being by himself and being with his disciples. Retreat and engagement. That's a pattern throughout the life of Christ. But more specifically, it's the pattern when Jesus is grieving. He balances retreat and relationships. So the first principle here for us is that we ought to balance retreat and relationships when we're grieving. It, it's, it's, it's important to grieve alone. It's important to get by yourself and have a good cry and work it out and just be by yourself when you are overcome with loss and sorrow. That's important. But it's also important to get around a community of people, trusted people that love you and support you and walk with you through the midst of that grief. Now, all of us kind of lean one way or the other here, don't we? Like, when you experience grief, have you ever seen, like, uh, for some of you, like, when there's a loss in a family or a death in a family, the extroverts, the people like me, we go into task mode, don't we? Like, we plan the service, and, like, we cook a bunch of food, and we're booking hotels, and people are coming in for a funeral, and we're making phone calls, we're getting people over to the house. It's like, how much baking can you actually do, you know? Because we're dealing with our grief by being around people and going into task mode. And that can be a really healthy thing because people are there to walk with you through that grief. But at some point, you've got to grieve by yourself too. Or introverts. Introverts. My wife's an introvert, so I'm going to make fun of you for a minute. Okay, so introverts, what happens when, when, when you grieve is you get alone and you grieve by yourself. And that's good. That's a healthy thing to do. God has wired you that way. That's all right. But sometimes that gets out of whack. It gets wompy-jawed, as we say in West Texas. It gets out of balance. And you need to re-engage in relationships and balance retreat and relationships even in the midst of your grief. So here's the trick. I think we all know what this means to get alone. I think we know what that means. I think we all know what relationships means to be around friends and family and trusted people. You know what the key word here? It's balance. 
That's what we struggle with. So I want to give you one question that might help you strike the balance of retreat and relationships in the midst of your grieving. Are you ready? When one of those things, whether it's retreat or relationships, when they stop bringing comfort to you, it's probably time to lean back the other way. See, what happens is we retreat from people like Jesus did. He got alone on a boat in a desolate place by himself, and that's okay. And we spend an hour or two hours or a day or two days grieving by ourselves. And at the end of that time, sometimes we go, oh, I'm so glad I did that. There were comfort, and I feel like I really grieved well. But then sometimes you feel like, man, that took everything I could possibly give and I don't feel any more comforted than I than when I started probably get around people then probably get around people and and strike that balance or it could be kind of a red flag when you engage in relationships and you're grieving while you're around friends and you're in you're processing with family around a dinner table and you're talking about this loss that you're experiencing and at the end of that time you feel like I feel more alone now than when I started you ever feel that way like alone in a crowded room, that could be just kind of a yellow flag that the retreat and relationships thing for you is a little out of balance. So let's learn from Jesus and learn how to balance withdrawal and engagement, retreat and relationships. That's principle one. Principle two, let's keep reading. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he got angry with them because he was trying to grieve. No. He had compassion. Love this word. Same word that's used when Jesus has compassion over Jerusalem. We just talked about. From the depths of his being, he felt their pain and healed their sick. Don't you love that about Jesus? Don't you love that about him? See, what happens here is Jesus is letting his grieving become giving. That's principle two. Let your grieving become giving. I have loved in my own personal life when I've been grieving loss, whatever that loss might be, when someone has wrapped their arm around me and said, you know what, I've been there too. How can I give to you right now? How can I serve you right now? And in the midst of their giving, you know what that brings to them? Greater comfort. See, Jesus has not turned inward. He's not become a navel gazer. Yes, he's got by himself to grieve alone, but he hasn't thrown a little pity party and said, woe is me, everybody take care of me. When he sees needs that he can meet, he has compassion, and his grieving wells up within him and becomes an outward expression of service to the people around him. What I'm suggesting to you is not that you, you know, every time you grieve, just try to work yourself into a tizzy serving people so you forget about it. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is that when you grieve, it can become this something inside of you called empathy or compassion. You're like, you know what? That person just lost their parent. I lost my parent. I'm going to pray for them. You're probably not going to be able to heal their sick like Jesus did, okay? You're probably not going to be able to do that. But what Jesus sees, and I just imagine this. The scripture doesn't say this, but I just imagine this. I just imagine Jesus saying, I've just lost my friend. I don't want them to lose their friends too, so I'm going to heal their sick. 
So it's looking at that person, like I said, that's just lost their parent or has just gone through a divorce or has just lost their job and they're grieving or they're going through infertility or they had a miscarriage or whatever it is. And you wrap your arms around them and say, hey, I've had that. That's happened to me. I've gone through that. Or, or I don't know what that's like, but how can I give to you and serve you? And not only will it bring comfort to them, but it can bring comfort to you in the midst of your grief as well. I'm going to read this quote to you because I think it's great, and then we're going to move on. It's um, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States in the early 19th century. Abraham Lincoln said this, To ease another's heartache is to forget one's own. Let your grieving become giving and find God's comfort in the midst of it. Principle number three, after feeding 5,000 people and after healing their sick, I've got something on my pants here, I'm not even sure what that is. Could be banana, English muffin. I'm trying to think of what my two-year-old had for breakfast. After feeding 5,000 people, Jesus dismissed the crowds. He went up on the mountainside by himself to do what? Come on now, he went up on the mountainside by himself to do what? Pray. pray. So I have no clever way to say this. In the midst of your grieving, just pray. <laughs> no alliteration, no clever way to say that, just pray. But here's the thing. When you're grieving, just as Jesus was grieving and he went to the heavenly father to pray, to communicate, to talk to him. When you're grieving, on three, raise your hand if you've ever had a tough time putting your grief into words. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah, there you go. You want help? Here you go. Up here on the screen. There's your help. Oh, God, comfort me. Uh, Psalm 55. Oh, God, this stinks. You might use a different word than that. Uh, Psalm 23. Oh, God, I need your leading. Oh, God, you're my ever-present help in times of trouble. Love this one. Psalm 116, uh, verse 15 says, Precious in the eyes of God are the death of his saints. Each one of these psalms will put language to your grief. So when you don't even know the words to cry out, go to one of these psalms. Just write a couple of them down. You don't have to write all of them down. Write a couple of them down. I'll leave them up there for a few minutes. We'll just sit here in awkward silence while you write them down. But however you're grieving or whatever you're grieving, whatever loss is heavy on your heart, whatever sorrow or mourning that you're experiencing right now, allow the Psalms to put language to it. And sometimes you can just go to God and pray and talk to him about it. Yeah, I get that. And you should follow Jesus' lead. That's our third principle is just to go to God with your grief in prayer. But when you can't find the words, just use the Psalms. And there's a couple of suggestions for you. One last principle and we'll be done. Watch, watch what Jesus does. After he's dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. This is verse 13 and 14a, I think, but I think it's 13 and 14. So, so listen to what's happened. When Jesus got alone to start, where was he? In a boat to a desolate place, right? Then he engaged with the crowds and he fed 5,000 people, actually 5,000 men, so probably close to 12,000, 13,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Great story, by the way. And then Jesus withdraws again to a lonely place to pray. Now listen, and he's there alone. Now listen, here's what I love about this, is that Jesus began Matthew chapter 14, grieving by himself. Then he allowed his grieving to become giving, and he gave of himself, and he healed their sick, and he fed 5,000 people. But then in verse 13, Jesus is not afraid to say, I still need to be alone because I'm still grieving. 
so you don't be afraid to say, I'm still grieving. I'm still grieving. That loss that you experienced in your life may have happened 30, 40, 50 years ago. For Jesus, this grief and sorrow, remember, he was familiar with pain and suffering. This is something that he would experience all the time in his life. I had a friend tell me one time that grief and loss and sorrow is a little bit like the soundtrack to a movie. You know, sometimes the soundtrack plays really low and sometimes it's turned up, but it's always playing. So sometimes we've grieved something just as Jesus did. and We've gotten alone and we've grieved with others and we've dealt with some sorrow. And then all of a sudden it comes up again and we've got to grieve again, don't we? You ever been in a situation where, where you think you're done with grief? You think you're done with sorrow, and then all of a sudden something comes out of the blue that shouldn't remind you of the thing, but it does remind you of the thing, like some smell or, 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 or some, some word or phrase, or like, you know, my friend that I lost, you know, and I'm grieving, like they really like Mountain Dew, and now I have a Mountain Dew, and now I'm thinking of them, and you feel really odd, don't you? Like, why is this thing reminding me, and it just seems really awkward and strange? And we have to have the courage to follow Jesus' lead and raise our hand and go, I'm still grieving. I'm still grieving. That's what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 14. He's already gotten alone. He's already ministered out of his grief. He's already been with his disciples. And he says, I've got to go get alone again because I'm still grieving. Last year in, in July, Amy and I went to uh, Florida, and I've, I've told you this before, but I, I just, just a, something, even as I continue to, to deal with this, but um, went to Florida to adopt a baby. We were in the hospital for three or four days and changed a bunch of diapers and, you know, did the bottle and all that stuff and stayed the night in the hospital and all that. And uh, the day, the Saturday that um, the adoption was supposed to be finalized, the birth mom changed her mind, and we had to walk out of that hospital room after caring for that child for four days and leave the child there. Uh, I walked out of the hospital room and I was crippled by grief. And I don't mean like theoretically or hypothetically crippled by grief. I meant I fell on the floor of the hallway in the hospital and I couldn't get up. And my wife, uh, who now has buffer biceps for having picked me up off the ground, <laughs> had to pick me up off the ground and walk me out of the hospital. We came back here, my parents were here, and it was great because we got time to grieve with them, and we got time to grieve together. Amy and I got time alone separately, and we grieved alone, and we went through some of these things. We allowed our grieving to become giving. We prayed just as Jesus did. We, 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 we processed by ourselves and with others and tried to balance retreat in relationships, and a couple, three weeks later, I felt like I was done with that grief. I, I felt like it, it, was, it was over. I felt like it had come to a conclusion. And then in November of last year, five months later, I went on a prayer retreat, and I really sensed that God brought this to the surface of my heart over those couple of days. Hey, Luke, you're still grieving, bud. You're still sad. Like, I, I know you like being happy, and I do. I know you like celebrating, and I do. I know you're kind of an eternal optimist, and I am. I know you like joy and being around friends and putting a smile on. I know, I know that. But I just sense God say, you have got to raise your hand and say, I'm still grieving. And you know what I said to God? I don't want to. Like, I, don't, I don't know that I have the courage. I don't know that I have the strength to come to my congregation or my friends or family or my wife and say, I'm still sad. I, I, know, 
I'm supposed to be over this. I know we went through all the process and all that stuff, but, but I, I, I'm still grieving. For some of you in the room, you need to say that this morning. You've lost a parent and maybe people around you have made you feel like it's supposed to be over, but you're still grieving. For some of you in the room, you lost a marriage and maybe it was a really, really bad marriage and you know you're glad to be out of it and that's good and it's okay, but, but you're still grieving that loss. Or maybe uh, you struggled with fertility issues and you've lost the hope of, of having a child biologically. And people say stupid stuff to you just like they say stupid stuff to me and Amy. And they make you think that that grief should be over. Take a cue from Jesus today. Raise your hand and say, I'm still grieving. Maybe some of you uh, have lost a spouse, not to death, but to dementia or Alzheimer's. Maybe some of you have experienced a financial loss or a job loss or a loss of a really important relationship in your life, whether a friendship or a dating relationship. And you might think it's silly and you might think it's foolish. People might make you feel that way, but it's not. It's okay to say, I'm still grieving. Here's what I want to do as we close here. I'm going to invite you to pray. So let's bow together. And what I want to do is as a man who has experienced a great deal of sorrow and grief in my own life, I want to pray for you in the room who would have the courage to say, I'm still grieving. Just like God prompted me to have the courage to say. Whatever that loss is, whether it's recent, whether it's been a while, I just want to lift you up in prayer today. So if that's you this morning and you'd like me to pray for you, on three, I want you to raise your hand. Just let me know. Nobody looking around. Nobody's looking at you. One, two, three, shoot your hand up and I'll pray for you. Cool. Great. Oh God of all comfort, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, you were called our comforter and we need it right now. God, there are people in this place who have lost people, things, and experiences that were so near and dear to their heart. Even folks in this room who you know, I guess in case of fertility or whatever, have lost things that they never had, but still is a loss. It's still a loss. God, your word says that you are near to the brokenhearted. Be near to these folks now as they've raised their hand and say, I need a touch from the Spirit of God. God, your word says that you're our refuge and our strength, our ever-present help in time of trouble. Be our refuge today and our strength today our ever-present help in time of trouble. Even now as we grieve together as a community and engage in relationships just as Jesus did, teach us to also grieve alone. Most importantly, God, bring your healing touch, your anointing, and your grace, even in the midst of our grief. Thank you, Jesus, for teaching us how to believe while we grieve. Christ's name, God's people said, amen. The word of God says we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope.
Let's stand and declare, even in the midst of our grieving, why we have hope.